is our communication course, lesson two. <coughs> Today we're going to be talking about listening. Okay, so the art of listening. Now, a lot of what we're going to speak about today are things maybe you would have heard in different places. Some modern, what might be called pop psychology. But the beauty of what we'll see today is um, there's sources in the Torah written 3,300 years ago or 2,000 years ago and so on, which actually only now, the last 10, 20 years, are modern psychologists actually realizing the truths that we... that is in our wisdom. So, that will be very interesting. But first we'll start with a, uh, a little video. Dysfunctional communication can result in bitter feelings. Take a look at what happens in this home when Judy greets her husband Michael as he arrives home from work at his usual late hour. Judy comments, Wow, it's late. What were you expecting? You know I need to work long hours to make ends meet. Would you rather I didn't work? Honey, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that... I know. I heard you. I'm used to these talks of yours. There's always something wrong. Yesterday it was the color of the suit I bought. Today it's my work schedule. I can't do anything right. No, Michael, don't get upset. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm sorry, Judy. How can it be that you're complaining about me, but it's not about me? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, dear. I sure hope the skills you will pick up in this lesson will allow us to sort this all out. Okay, so what were the, uh, what were the issues in that communication? Interruptions. Interruptions, okay. Good. We're listening to each other, okay. They're both very tired. <laughs> All right, good. I don't think we're going to deal with that tonight. <laughs> um, with the tired part, that is. Okay. So if you want to write anything down, you can have a exercise one has a placer for you to write on page 40. But uh, here's advice in King Solomon. Wisest of men. King Solomon says in text number one, he who responds before listening, it is folly and an embarrassment for him. So what does that mean? Obviously, King Solomon isn't talking about that you respond before listening and hearing anything. Rabbi Sadia Goyen clearly says that what he's saying is that before that you respond before fully listening. Right? So you hear half a story. This is one of the things that you picked up in the video, right? So, um, why does that happen? Why do you respond before fully listening? Right, okay. That's one, yeah. Well, right, you think you know what they're going to say. 
Yes. You might know what they're going to say because you think you know them or because of what they've said the first half of the verse of what they said, right? Um, okay. So obviously this is a problem. Interrupting someone else whilst they're talking and doesn't give you the ability to actually listen to what they're saying. Because, of course, King Solomon is not talking about hearing. He's talking about listening. So this fellow has a problem with listening. We'll give you a little uh, anecdote. This fellow went to the audiologist. He says, my wife is going deaf. And she refuses to go, come to you. So the doctor advises, listen. This is what you do to prove to her that she's going deaf. You say, say something from a fair distance, from a regular distance, and then get closer and closer, and you'll see when she actually hears you. So he does that. He, he starts from a distance, and he, in a normal tone of voice, he says, I love you, my darling. No response. She's washing the dishes or whatever, so he goes closer. I love you, my darling. No response. He gets closer till he's literally behind her. She says, I love you, my darling. She turns around and says, for the third time, I love you too. <laughs> um, so, that's the person who has a problem with hearing. <laughs> but today we're talking about listening. So let's see, text number two. Yeah. Hearing takes place when some something disturbs the atmosphere and that disturbance takes takes the form of pressure waves and strikes our eardrums and as sound it's the way we perceive sound listening is different it's it expands on hearing when we pay attention to the to the meaning of the, what we hear for example a truck just rolled by on the road in front of our house i jim heard the noise a noisy tr- rumble knew what it was, and after that, paid no attention whatsoever. We do that when we are merely hearing the words some words someone else is speaking. <clears throat> they are just uh, vibrations in the atmosphere. We nod, smile, perhaps even respond, but we are listening. But we are listening? Hardly. Listening requires that we open to the meaning of what other person's words that we in very uh, re- real way enter into the experience those words are meant to convey. It's no longer just about uh, ju- just about sound, but about the thoughts, feelings, points of view, expectations, memories, sensations, beliefs, and the whole the whole of the other person, or at at least as much as the whole as it available in the in the moment. Okay, so now we have an exercise, exercise number two, um, and this will help you assess your listening skills. Okay, so let me explain to you how this exercise works. Uh, it's a little confusing here. So we have four answers: almost never, sometimes, often, and almost always. Okay, so almost never is an A, sometimes is a B, C is often, and D almost always is a D. Very important that you keep the A, B, C, D as they are. You have here 25 questions. Okay? You answer with an A, B, C, and D to all of them. Okay? 
then I will tell you how to go through it afterwards. All right. So, like, make people feel that. So, make people feel that you're interested in them and what they have to say. You do that almost never. Sometimes, often, almost always. Right. So this is a test. You don't have to show anyone what you reply. I certainly suggest that you don't show your wife um, <laughs> how you how you scored, but go through it. Um, good question. Think of a specific person. Think of a specific person in your relationship. Make it easier for you. Yeah. Probably Not necessarily anyone. Just think of one person in your mind and, and uh, respond based on that. Is it clear to you to how to fill this out? Everyone clear? open yeah? the main door was open just wondering if people are the main door is open
Okay. I finished. So when you finish, uh, score yourself. It tells you how to score yourself, okay? So if um, the, the odd-numbered questions, so for the odd-numbered questions, um, do the following. So for every A is a 1, B is a 2, C is a 3, and D is a 4. Okay, for the odd-numbered questions. The even-numbered questions is the reverse. A is a 4, B is a 3, C is a 2, D is a 1. So first maybe uh, score your odd-numbered questions, and then your even-numbered questions. No. Odd number questions A is a one. Even number question A is a four. You get it? You got your toe? And? Uh, it's, uh, it's below average. Oh, you, you see, you have the number there, below average, okay. Anyone else? Anyone else have totals yet? You didn't finish. Homework. Okay. Yeah, we can't. Uh, we need to actually do the lesson. We won't have time for every. So, you finished already, Duff? Not yet.
might have to let you guys finish in homework. How'd you do? Above average. Congratulations. Generally speaking, women score better than men. <laughs> the average? Okay. All right. So um, if you're above average then and higher, then uh, today's lesson is going to reinforce what you know already, I guess. <laughs> already what you're doing. Um, with some additional ideas for improvements. Otherwise, uh, listen. Listening is a very difficult. It's a hard art to master. So it's quite natural um, that uh, in the middle of a conversation we think, I know what he's going to say. I know what he means. I know what I want to answer. And, you know, I can't wait till he finishes or whatever. Stops talking. So I'm going to give him my brilliant response. Um, so, what we're going to do today, what's today's lesson is, why is it so difficult to listen? And what are the, what are the primary impediments of, to listening? So, we'll deal with um, what does it mean to listen and what does it require? And we'll give you different tools to improve our listening skills. So, that's what today's lesson is. We'll actually have tools to... to to uh, do what we need to do. So there was a um, husband was looking through the paper and he comes across a study. And he says to his wife, Ah, you see? I always said this to you. It says here that women talk twice as much as men. An average man speaks 15,000 words a day and a woman 30,000 words a day. So she says, That's because we have to repeat everything we say. <laughs> to which he says, What? <laughs> Uh, okay um, so why would we not listen the first thing is you won't listen to a person if you don't respect them or make it a little bit softer you might respect them but not respect their knowledge in this area you know, if someone, whatever, is, is ignorant of politics and is going to t- talk to you about politics, you're not interested. You could respect them as a person. They could be in other areas and be very interested in them. But this is not an area of the, that they know much about. They're totally ignorant. I'm not, res- you know, respect them. So what, what am I going to listen to? So the more you know about something, or more knowledgeable you are in a field, you might say, okay, if someone's ignorant in that field, I'm not, what am I going to listen to? See, I have no interest in what he has to say. Um, we don't think they can enlighten us, right? So here we have the first aha moment from Torah. We're a very famous Mishnah, a very famous part of Pirkei Avot, text number 3a. It's a short one, so I'll say it. Ben Zoma said, would say, who is wise, one who learns from every person. Okay. So this is actually, you know, sounds good, it's beautiful, idealistic, it's populist now. Um, but let's let's actually develop this. I mean, it's a nice statement, but what does what does it actually mean? Like, why would you learn from every person? Again, if I'm an expert in the area and they're an ignorant in that area, why would I listen to them? So, yes. Because most of them know everything. 
computer and, and you should find it somewhere and you're always going to meet somebody during the day, so you can't meet only one person, you know, that, that's why that means you only need to remember as well. Okay. So we'll, we'll articulate a little bit differently. So yeah. Um, so here's the the explanation or the perspective of the Abarbanel, and he says like this, text number three B. Daniel, would you like to read three B? Wisdom is shared among the general population. The prophet said. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, for no one can claim to have gained true wisdom alone without the contributions of others. Ben Zomar therefore said, Who is wise, one who learns from every person? Inasmuch as wisdom is shared by the collective of humanity, one can only gain complete wisdom through learning from every person. So what he's saying is that the, that the depository of wisdom in the world God gave to all humanity. Not one person. You cannot have either one depository of wisdom. So therefore, you speak to other people, they will give you their wisdom as they know it. And that's the only way you will be able to know more and more is by getting it from others. Because God didn't place it only in you. He placed it everywhere. Which is a fascinating thought, right? Then... um, So it's not in one person, it's not in one family, in one country... It's a product of, of collective history. So when we interact with people, so there's another point here, when we interact with people with different backgrounds and different um, fields of expertise and cultures, we can get a novel insight. That if we only mix with our own kind of circle, we won't. That's why, by the way, imagine, think about this. We have a court. Here you have court, uh, basically you have one judge. Supreme Court maybe has whatever, seven, nine. In the Jewish um, system, the Supreme Court had 71 judges. A court that meted out capital cases had 23 judges. I mean, that's that's quite uh, burdensome, right? If you go to a meeting with 23 people, <laughs> imagine 23 judges. <laughs> so... Um, but the, this is one of the reasons for it. Because to get the wisdom, to be able to deal with the case properly, you need the multitude of people to be able to come to to understand things even more. That's why that, that law is that way. And besides that, there's another point. Every person, so we have the collective, the wisdom being the collective uh, knowledge, we have the diversity of people giving you more insight. And then you have the uniqueness of every individual, even people who are this in, a, in a similar environment. Each person is unique. Each person is unique. They have their way of filtering things and seeing things. And you can gain from, from listening to them. Okay. But they might not want depart, uh, impart what they know to you. They might be just... Um, <coughs> How do we know that we're going to actually get, get something out of out of this conversation? So, I'm sorry, that was. That's, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, so how the the best way of being able to learn from others is also how we view ourselves, as we see in the next text, text number four. Michelle. So, you might know, right? Uh, in Judaism, who do we what do we call a, a scholar? Talmud Chacham. Why do you call him Talmud Chacham? Call just call him Chacham. The reason we call him Talmud Chacham, right? Why do we call him Talmud Chacham? Because he's always always in the process of learning. Always in the, he's always a Talmud. He's always a student, right? So, um, only so only then, only if we think we know it all, then we obviously are not open to learn from anyone else. It's only when um, where we we always want to learn more that we actually will. That's more and more common today. People resort to name calling and stuff like that without debating the issue, or they'll pick up on a minor point and and and, and blow your way on a minor point. And till now, that's not a problem. Our problem is going to be in the next reading. But right now, it's not an issue. But what, what's the issue? We're saying. That if people are talking about an issue, you should you shouldn't be closed-minded because you know it all or whatever. You always want to learn. Now, if they're attacking, that's a different thing altogether. That's a different that's a different point. It's not really the point we're making here. Um, we'll, we'll deal with it as we go further in the course. Although sometimes that okay, well, the issue becomes right now actually. Because I thought you were going to ask something else. Um, what if you're not interested in... You know, he'll tell you about a profession that he has that you have no interest in. Right? It's not, it's not like, you know, I'm not interested in law. He's going to talk to me about law or whatever. Or, med, or whatever, any, any, any profession. And I'm not interested in that profession. So what am I going to gain by listening to him? That's the question. I would ask now, right? If it's a field of, of, of interest, and I just think the person doesn't have anything to share that's worthwhile in that field, so Ben Zayma says, who is wise, you learn from everybody. But what's if the field doesn't interest me altogether? How about then? There could be parallels in that field with other things that you're interested in. Yeah, that's kind of a stretch. Could be. So here is a very interesting reading from the Rebbe. We know the principle of Ashgacha Pratis, right? Divine providence. So everything, every interaction is by divine providence. So if it's by divine providence that I'm talking to this guy, then obviously God 
put me in this place because the information he's giving me is useful for me. Otherwise, otherwise God would not give me this information. Why did God create this circumstance that right now I'm hearing from this person what he's saying? Only because I can learn from him. There's a problem. If you're trying to analyze what the other person... If you're trying to analyze the situation, uh, let's say you're not interested in the subject. You're talking to me and I'm trying to think now, what is it that Hashem is trying to get me to hear in what you're saying? Then I'm actually not listening to you. Very good. We'll get to that. I think I think we'll have that answer later on. That's a good point. It's another problem in listening. Yeah. Good point. So text number five. Michelle. Oh, okay. So, what does that say? Yeah. Nonsense. I think it's a very good. I think it's a good question. Taking just taking this last reading on its own, if what you're hearing is nonsense, right? It could very well be that. Um, that the divine providence in it is to see that this is a person that's disturbed that you need to help. Right? So every interaction is predestined and is purposeful. Now what the purpose is, it actually might be a challenge to you. This uh, goes a little bit to what you're saying, to what you asked earlier. The predestined, it might actually be a challenge to you to say, you know, what's if a person puts you down? Do you have to take it on board? That might very well be a challenge to you not to get affected by the negative words of that person. That doesn't take away from the purpose. The purpose could be the challenge. Okay? So, but, in most cases, that would not, that, I mean, it's not just that this person is speaking, stuff I know, whatever, nothing, nothing unique. Then, why did God have this interaction? Because it's something I can hear from Him, something I can listen to. Again, our problem is that we 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 why 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 is it difficult for us to listen? Because we think we know it all. Let's let's start with a problem. We think we know we know we know everything already in this field that needs to be known, or I'm certainly not going to be able to learn it from you. So therefore, we're told, hold on. Every, every person is a depository of wisdom. 
and God put you in this position because there's something you could listen to and something you can get, a nugget, some point that you'll be able to utilize in your life. Okay, so that's what we see here, figure 2.1. Figure 2.1 tells us listening impediment, a lack of respect for the person or the person's knowledge, I would add, of the subject matter with whom I am conversing. And the listening tool is to contemplate that A, every person has wisdom or perspective that I lack. B, everything that I hear is a vital message that is intended for me. Okay, so that's that's number one. So you just have that in your mind. That um, I can learn from everyone and every situation is, the, is, a, is a teachable moment, as they say. Right? Every situation is a teachable moment for me. Whatever that teachable moment is. No, there's nothing that just happens. And the first order of business is to see is there something actually the person is saying that's a benefit that I could learn from. And if you don't hear anything you can learn from, okay, you'll have to get to the next level. What, what was this per, Is there something I need to do for them? You know, we have this concept. Uh, the Vashem Tov says that everything that when when someone um, <laughs> sees a fault in someone else, sees a fault in someone else, it's proof that you have. It's a mirror image of your own fault. The Rebbe explains why is this so. Because why would else why else would God show you this fault in the other person? If not, why would God show you this fault if not to tell you this you have this own your fault yourself? But there's one exception. Maybe God is showing me the fault to help them. So the question is, what do I see? If I see a need to help, then that's why God is showing me the fault, because for me to do something about it to help them. But if I see a fault, I'm not seeing a need to help. All I see is a fault. Then that is proof that it's... it's why would God show you a fault in someone else? Well, what poor point is that? To help them, yes, that would be one. But if that's not what's on the table, if that's not what you're able to do or interested in, then it's proof that it's a reflection of the same fault, maybe more subtle in yourself. As a matter of fact, the second Chabad Rebbe um, one stopped in the middle of his yichidus in his private audience with people would come in and they would kind of pour out their hearts and ask advice and, and tell them about their weaknesses and so on and he would you know, obviously give them advice and once he stopped uh, taking people and he said that when a pe- person comes into him and tells him his fault he has to find subtly within himself that same fault in order to be able to respond to it and this guy came with such a terrible thing that I couldn't find it myself. So I figured it's probably so deep within me that I'm not even realizing it. So I'm, he stood and davened and davened until he could find that this is a subtle part of this negativity that this guy told him about that he could find within himself. Sorry? Yeah. You can never be objective to yourself, frankly. You always need a mentor, absolutely. Anyway, but the point I'm making is, the similarity to this is, that why did God put you in a position to hear from this person? Either, it's one of two things, either you're here to hear, to help them, or there's information there for you to, to take in. But if there's information, either way, you have to listen. Either way, you have to hear, out, hear, hear them out. If you have to help them, you have to hear them out. And if it's for you, for sure you have to hear them out. Okay, so that's number one. Number two. 
So we spoke. No, sorry, if yeah. we can go back to that. That would suggest that in every interaction we have with people, we need to have a God consciousness. In other, in 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 order to be able to uh, this principle be in touch with with the message. Yeah. To understand and feel the message. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in a sense, I mean. I guess your God consciousness is the the concept of Hashgacha Pratis is a God consciousness, right? Of Hashgacha Pratis, divine providence. That everything that happens is by divine providence is exactly that, a, a, a God consciousness. You know that nothing happens by chance. Everything has happens for a reason. You, right? You know that. So therefore, obviously... Then you go on to the next. It's a, it's a problem that I and I suspect a lot of people would also have, which is that as we go through Everyone each day, it. we just get lost in the physicality of things. For sure, but if you have this in the background of your mind, it always comes to the fore when you need it. Right. I mean, a shocha practice is a so wonderful is, idea yeah. when you're stuck in traffic and you start getting frustrated about here being stuck. You remember, yeah, God wants me to be stuck in traffic. Fine. This is the purpose <laughs> for whatever reason. So um, it's not only good for when you're stuck in traffic or when you miss a flight, uh, or or worse, it's a good thing for interactions with people. Why why did this happen? Why did this interaction happen? There must be a point in it. Okay. Just watching other people get angry. Okay. So I always have it on. So if I get stuck, I get stuck. Please use unconditional to my tape. But you know, when you watch everyone else getting angry and beating their horns and everything, it's okay. All right, let's get there. Yeah. Let's move along. So now we're going to start talking. So we till now we said who to listen to, which is everyone. Now we're going to talk about how to listen. How do we implement this principle? So. in, in the um, in the next section, the, it seems to put Moshe Rabbeinu not in such a good light, or at least um, this perspective of of, of, the, of Moshe. And I, we believe that Sadikim were righteous and wouldn't have the failures actually that we're we're, we're going to suggest that Moshe had. But I think that the Torah tells us these. Um, anecdotes in order for us to learn from. So, even if if um, you have different ways of explaining it within Moshe, which we could over here anyway, um, it also lends itself to lessons that we can learn ourselves. For example, the Gemara says, Talmud says, anyone who says that King David sinned is making a mistake. Okay? I'm not going to go into the details how that's possible, but you know, with Bathsheba, etc., right? But the 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 simple reading of the Tanakh don't read right, don't, doesn't read very well, right? And King David himself says, you know, I've sinned before you. So there's two uh, there's two points you have to take. On the one hand, you have to know that King David was a, a righteous tzaddik. He was the one who wrote the Tehillim, which we live by. Literally, you know, it gives us comfort and, and, and succor in times of need and so on. And King David was uh, God's Mashiach, frankly, at the time. On the other hand, there are stories told in a way that we can take these messages to to learn. We as as
people who are who are the, you know have our faults can certainly learn from the simple meaning of what it says in the Tanakh for our own for our own sake. So even if I will say King David didn't sin, but I could learn for it for myself um, in my own shortcomings. Okay, so this is how we'll see. Even I mean, it's not the same, but this this little episode with Moshe. So what we have here is that the tribe of Gun, a tribe of Beruvin um, and and God, they come to Moshe. They say they have a lot of sheep, and they uh, want to stay in the other side of the Jordan River. Okay, so text six a will relate the story. Um, you want to read? The tribes of Reuben and Gad had a great abundance of livestock, and they saw that the lands of Jazza and Gilead were ideal suited for livestock. They approached Moses, Eliza, the priest, and the leaders of the community. If you would have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants for, the pos- for possession. Do not take dust across the Jordan River. Moses said to the tribes of Gad and Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you see them? Why do you discourage these Israelites from crossing over to the land of God and given them? This is what your father did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. They went up to Eskol Valley and saw the land and they returned with a negative report and discouraged the Israelites from crossing to the land of God and giving them. So Moshe then accuses them, right, of following the footsteps of the spies, right? This is what we just see. So he accuses them of that. So what happens afterwards? So the tribes respond to Moshe, saying, David. The tribes of God and Reuben approached Moshe and said, We will build here on the east bank of the Jordan River, families for our livestock and cities for our children. But we will arm ourselves to battle and lead our fellow Israelites into battle until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our children will reside in these fortified cities of protection, and the inhabitants of the land. We shall not return to our homes here until each of the Israelites has taken possession of the land. Okay, so Moshe heard this, he changes his tune, he says he consents, right? Now, um, so what happened here? Was there a counter-proposal, or did Moshe just interject in the middle, and they didn't let them finish? So there are different opinions. One opinion is that indeed they were they weren't thinking of, of going to war. And after Moshe said what he said, they said, okay, okay, well we'll we'll go to war and we'll build our homes here and so on. But the Barbanel sees it differently. He sees that Moshe interjected in the middle of their conversation. He didn't listen fully to them. As we see here, text number six C, uh, Meyer. You haven't done yet. The tribes of Gad and Reuben were terror-stricken at Moses' response. They wished to tell him that, with all due respect to his greatness, he had not understood their intention. 
when they said, do not take us across the Jordan River, they had not intended that they would not join their brothers there in battle. Their sole intent was with regard to their eventual inheritance. They did not wish to permanently settle across the Jordan River. So Moshe has in his mind, what's happening here with Moshe? He has in his mind, you know, the spies, the story of the spies, which we're reading actually in this week's Parsha. Um, and he remembers their, their, their forefathers' error, right? Their parents' error, 40 years ago. So they were back to square one. So this is another habit that we have when listening, right? What is that? We fit what the speaker is saying to how we see things. Right? Or how we view them. So Moshe Rabbeinu is kind of... Oh. oh this is what they mean. Ah, okay. That's a, that's a problem, right? Because he didn't hear them. He, or he heard them, but he, he, he heard what they said in the context of how he saw them. To give you an example. Right? So if you have someone who's forgetful. And... You, um, so I won't entertain her recollection of something because she always forgets. You know, she's always, she, she doesn't. Her information is not clear in her mind usually. Okay, so I'm taking the fact that I know she forgot things, and I therefore I'm imposing it on the, the the conversation we're having now that she's probably forgetting, or a child who's un, unmotivated in school, and he uh, shares with you a frustration regarding how his teacher. Uh, is, is treating him. What you might think is, okay, he's not motivated in school, it's an excuse. That's what, you'll, that's what might come to your mind. Or you have a, a curt boss, strikes up a, co- a friendly conversation, you're thinking, uh-huh, uh, what's this trap here? What's, 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 what's he's got, what does he have here? In, uh, what's he planning? So, but when you're listening, you, sh- you have to erase your preconceived ways of thinking about the other person right you have this construction in your brain of a construct in your brain of the other person you have to kind of put that aside and perhaps maybe in this case this event made such an impression on her that she remembers or maybe that's why the kid doesn't like school because he's constantly being uh, uh, um, mistreated by his teacher and he never had the courage to come talk to you and now he's finally talking to you Instead of thinking about, oh, he doesn't like school, that's why he's, maybe that's why he doesn't like school. Take that seriously. Or maybe the boss came to realization, and now he wants to, you know, be more friendly. Or maybe he's just an introvert, and uh, he's trying to get over his challenges in the first stage of going over his challenge. So there are different ways of seeing things, right? We take our pre pre conceived ideas of the other person and we we color what they say with that with that with that uh, with that uh, way of seeing them Yeah. 
Good, good point. Okay, thanks for that. Yes. Uh, yep, absolutely. Now, so look, you can't be naive. You can't ignore it completely, right? Um, you know, all of a sudden the child's an angel. Not necessarily. Um, but we have to give it the benefit of the doubt. Be open to the possibility that our perception is erroneous or incomplete or that the current issue isn't related to what you're thinking. Right? So, exercise number three. I think uh, Lisa gave us a, a good intro into that. Think of a relationship in which you have constructed a concrete mental image of a certain person. Can you identify times and circumstances when you habitually use that image to judge the person's words or actions? And what are alternative ways to interpret this person's words and actions? So think about that. Okay. So, listening impediments and tools, number two is fitting what I hear into the mental image I have created of my fellow conversationalist based on previous experiences. The listening tool for that is clear my mind of any pre-existing opinions regarding my fellow. Okay, so that's number two. Okay, so now I'm going to uh, the next one. We will um, introduce with this video. In 1847, 29-year-old Samuel Weiss began work in the maternity unit of the Vienna General Hospital. All around him, a mystery was playing out. Vienna's leading hospital... One second. Have you heard of uh, Samuel Weiss? As a doctor, you've probably heard of him. Right? It's in your area. Um, okay, so he's actually Jewish. Let's make it a little louder. actually put it on and then go to try to Friends of women, every year, go there to give birth, develop a fetal condition called childbed fever. Swollen abdomen, multiple abscesses, fever, and then death. Nobody knows what causes it, and nobody knows how to stop it. In the hospital, there are two units, one run by midwives, the other by doctors. If you're unlucky enough to be in the one run by doctors, where Semmelweis works, then you are nine times more likely to die from childbed fever than if you're in the hands of the midwives. Why? Semmelweis was greatly puzzled by this discrepancy. He became obsessed with solving the mystery, trying everything from changing the way the women were lying to changing what they ate. But nothing worked. Everything was unexplained. Everything was dubious. Only the great number of victims was an indisputable reality. Oh, 
Weiss and his fellow doctors dissected the dead mothers, but they found nothing. Nonetheless, day after day, he visited the mortuary before returning to the woods. He works harder and harder, but women just keep on dying. He is depressed, he is confused, he is perplexed. And then there is a vital breakthrough. A friend, Jakob Kolechka, professor of forensic medicine, cut his finger during an autopsy and was dead days later. Distraught and desperate to know what killed him, Samuel Weiss dug out the post-mortem report on Kolechka's death. The report revealed that when he died, his friend had a swollen abdomen, multiple abscesses and fever. The same things that had killed so many of the mothers. My mind in this excited state registered with irresistible clarity the identity of the disease Kolechka had died of and the disease I had seen cause the death of so many hundreds of women in childbed. For Samuel Weiss, this must have been an astonishing and utterly appalling moment. Could it be that he had finally solved the mystery, that he had actually discovered that the killer was him, that he and his fellow doctors had somehow been carrying on to the wards death on their hands? It was a shocking, heretical thought. But it would finally explain why being delivered by a midwife was so much safer than being delivered by a doctor. Midwives didn't do autopsies. They didn't carry deadly matter on their hands. Without consulting his superiors, Samuel Weiss posted a notice on the door of the clinic, ordering all the doctors to wash their hands in chloride of lime. It was not a popular move. The doctors found all this faddish hand-washing tedious, pointless, time-consuming. Semmelweis had to hang around the woods day and night to force them to do it properly. But he was determined. Semmelweis's hand-washing regime now began to produce spectacular results. Death rates from childbed fever plunged down from more than 10% to less than 3%. Dozens of women who would otherwise have died now lived. This must have been the happiest period of Samuel Weiss's life. He was living on borrowed time, because he had not convinced the doctors. He had no rational or scientific explanation of how dirty hands could cause death. The women were dying from what we now call septicemia, blood poisoning. Semmelweis had no idea of its cause. He just knew he was on to something. However, with some simple equipment that Semmelweis didn't have, I can show you what he was up against. Now, I have over here some agar jelly. And what this is going to be useful for is I'm going to dip my hands in it, roll them around, and three days ago, I did exactly what I just described, and this was the result. Can you see that? Isn't that lovely? There are lots of little colonies on there, in fact, tens of millions of bacteria. One lot is apparently a relative of the bacteria that causes MRSA. If that got into an open wound, it would do you no good at all. Now, next what I'm going to do is I'm going to add some bleach. This is the equivalent of chloride and lime. Ah, right. Give them a good scrub. 
Now what I need to do is I get another one of these um, and I dip my fingers again and roll them around. And you can see much improved. There are colonies there. There are far fewer of them. Semmelweis knew dirty hands caused disease. But he couldn't explain why. And without a proper explanation, his colleagues just laughed at him. The idea that a bit of dirt around your fingernail was enough to kill you was ridiculous. They live in a world in which they've never thought of germs. They know that if you look at a wound through a microscope, you will see lots of tiny things crawling around in it. They believe that they are spontaneously generated. And they regard them as harmless. It's irrelevant. They pay no attention to them. Samuel Weiss's boss and his fellow doctors were sick and tired of his ideas. So when his contract came to an end, it was not renewed, and he went home in disgrace to Budapest. Not only that, you know what happened to Samuel Weiss? He got so depressed, um, he became his 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 behavior became erratic. He was actually committed to an insane asylum in 1965, and he in 1865, and he where he died two weeks later at the age of 47. So, what is why didn't they accept his? It seemed absolutely, um, you know, uh, clear how how correct he was. Why didn't the rest of the medical world accept his findings? They had no knowledge of the field. But knowledge of the field or not, here was a reality. The numbers speak for themselves. He fixed it. It went down from more than 10% to less than 3%. Okay, good. He may have been into personal issues as well. He may have been, <coughs> a bit of a rogue, or he may have always brought up ideas which were kind of unpopular and didn't always and then, you know, all the took this one big where, um, you know, he kind of um, was, was very kind of motivated to see through and nobody was willing to think about it. Mm, okay. Thought out of the box, yeah. But, but, but he proved it right. It wasn't just... It wasn't just a, a hypothesis. I see arrogance in their attitude. The arrogance made them blind to the, to the fact. Mm-hmm. I think the answer is probably more simple. If you can't see it and you don't understand it, then there's no reason to believe it. Okay. But no, no, no. But you could right see it. Right through history, you've got, well, you've, got, you've got, you know, folk remedies that work beautifully. Like in India, right? If you cut yourself, you put turmeric on the wood promoted healing, you killed germs, you did all sorts of stuff. In um, the UK... And therefore, what are you trying to say? People saw that things worked, and they used them right. without understanding the reason Right, just by them. observing the, the, the results. Yeah. And, and, I mean, people had this tree, I forget what it was, and they, they, they made a tea out of the leaves or whatever else, and it stopped people from dying of stroke and heart attack. Sorry? Could be. 
There was a doctor who um, went to visit someone and who was on it. Because everyone wants evidence-based research. Everything has to be Right. So let's let's see. Number one, it conflicted. As they would say, it conflicted with what they knew before, right? It conflicted with established medical scientific uh, opinions of the time. Number two, it was quite offensive because basically you're saying to them, you caused the death of all these women. If you say, by your not washing your hands, you caused all these women to die. It was quite... And thirdly, um, it would lead to a total overhaul of how medicine was being practiced, right? So, he had statistical evidence to back him up, right? Very clear statistical evidence. But they rejected his ideas. Why? So we put it this way. It's unfamiliar. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. And these paradigms are the reasons sometimes that we have a hard time hearing, listening to someone else. Right? It's unfamiliar, it's uncomfortable, and it's inconvenient. So whatever doesn't fit into that square, what's familiar, comfortable, and convenient, we don't want to hear. So we're entrenched in our perspective. Um, and we can't imagine another alternative. So what happens when our paradigm is being attacked or questioned? What happens then? Become defensive. Exactly. And we have counterattack. And we come up with of uh, we wait for the moment to unleash our counterattack. That's how we're going to respond to them, right? That's the human nature. So if someone's going to um, make you uncomfortable with ideas that, again, unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and inconvenient, you're not just going to accept it. That's the way we are. So how do we get out of that? How do we, how do we learn to listen even to ideas that are uncomfortable, unfamiliar, and inconvenient? So one second, one second. So that was a rhetorical question. Um, so we're going to leads us to text number seven. I think. Um, so Mark, you didn't read here. Read in the text number seven. When Rabbi Zera went to the land of Israel, fasted one hundred days, prayed that he would forget the Babylonian Talmud, so that it would not impede his ability to study the Torah. Okay, so let me let me just for. Knowledge sake. Um, what is it? The Talmud is the Mishnah and the Gemara. Okay? When we say Talmud, it's made up of Mishnah, which is the law, the original written law, and the Gemara, which is a conversation about the law. Um, conversation meaning what's about this case, what about that case, how do you know, what's about, um, let's compare it to another opinion, and so on and so forth. 
Now, there were two Talmuds. One Mishnah, but two Talmuds. This is a Talmud in Jerusalem and Talmud in Babylonia. The Talmud that we study today mostly is the Babylonian Talmud. Why? Because it went on longer. But over here, on the second shelf there, that's Jerusalem Talmud, the green ones. That's Jerusalem Talmud. And below, the red ones, is the Babylonian Talmud. So it's a greater, there's a greater body of Babylonian Talmud than there is of the Jerusalem Talmud. <coughs> Rabbi Zera was a Babylonian Talmudist. And he went up to Israel. And prior to coming to Israel, or prior to arriving in Israel, he fasted 100 fasts. Why? So that he should forget the methodology of how you study in Babylonian Talmud to be able to then receive or um, come relate to the way the Talmud was studied in Jerusalem. Well, fasting means that he eats at night. You know? Right. Can't fast 100 days in a row, no. <laughs> um, so, uh, sorry? Yeah, it wasn't like him keeping up. Anyway, let's, uh, let's not get sidetracked with that aspect. The, fa- the point is, the Rabbi Zera wanted to have an ability to understand things from a different perspective. He had to lose the way he used to, was seeing things to get a new way of seeing things. So, for example, um, you know, if you're an economist and then you try to appreciate a painting, you know, you can't apply the rules of supply and demand to a painting. Or if you're a uh, math student and you want to bring a calculator to psychology class. Just doesn't work. So this is the way it was. Rabzera was studying with a certain perspective. Now he had to go on to a different way of thinking. He had to lose the way he used to think in order to gain a new way of thinking. So this teaches us the concept. I mean, this is something called Bloom's taxonomy. And the Bloom's taxonomy, which is an educational theory, the first ingredient is to hear what the other person has to say without evaluating, without conditions. Just what, know the what. First you have to know the what. When you're speaking to someone, you're listening, the first thing you have to know is what is being said. Because we have a big impediment, and this impediment is actually expressed through this Mishnah, Mishnah 8, I mean the text 8. I will read it because it's, um, it's getting late for us to be able to conclude the lesson. Elisha, the son of Avuya, would say, one who learns Torah as a child is comparable to ink inscribed on fresh paper. One who learns Torah in his his or her old age is comparable to ink inscribed on erased paper. So Elisha and Avuya, actually is a fascinating story in itself, but we don't have time for it now, um, is telling us who is more open to receive parenting techniques, a new parent or an old parent? A new parent. Because the old parent thinks he knows it all. So he's not going to come up with new, new techniques, right? Um, so uh, someone who's new on a job is open to learning about the job than someone who's on the job for many years. So a child's brain is a blank slate, right? child's brain is a blank slate. 
So everything is exciting. He's always discovering. An adult already has preconceived new, um, ways of thinking, preconceived information. So he's not going to break out of the box. He's, he's, he's kind of developed himself in a particular box, and that's how he sees the world. The child doesn't have a, doesn't have a filter that's tainting his interpretation of events. We have a frame of re- reference by which we approach the world. And so Rabbi Zera says, hold on, I want to be like a child. But what do you mean, how are you, how are you going to be like a child? So here there's a fascinating thought from the Rebbe, here in, page, in text number 9a, that each one of us can actually be, can we, we can gain the curiosity and the naivete of a child. How? So the mission extols the value of the Torah study of a child, comparing it to ink written on fresh paper, as opposed to the Torah study of an elder person, which it likens to ink written on erased paper. On the deeper level, this mission refers not only to the Torah study of a child, one who is young in years, but also to anyone who studies Torahs with bitl. Bitl means humility. Such a person's mind is like a child's open to new perspectives and possibilities, and therefore able to fully and properly assimilate the Torah he or she studies. In the manner of ink written on fresh paper, conversely, studying Torah like an elder means to use only the tools of one's own wisdom and intellect. In Talmudic terminology, an elder is one who has acquired much wisdom, but without bitl, without humility. Such a person cannot properly grasp the Torah, God's Torah, that he or she studies. It's a fascinating uh, um, talk, actually, the Rebbe gives about the, the names of Pesach. Chag HaMatzos. I'll give you two of them. It's Chag HaMatzos and Zman Cheresenu. Um, so in the Siddur we call it Zman Cheresenu, the time of our freedom. And in the Chumash it's called Chag HaMatzos. So he says like this, Matzah we know is humility, because Matzah is flat, it's humble. The first step for the Jewish people becoming a nation was humility, meaning to be able to be totally an uh, empty slate. God, hit me with what you got. I'm ready to listen. The second thing is freedom. Freedom or matzah and wine. Matzah is the, the first step. And wine, which represents freedom. That's why we drink four cups of wine, because it's the holiday of our freedom. Wine is something tasty. Wine is already where you utilize your faculties to understand what is being taught. So every learning experience needs that. Yes, you evaluate. But not when you're hearing what is being said. Evaluating whilst the person is speaking, that's problematic, big time. When do you evaluate after you have heard it? Now, okay, is this what was being said? Now, let me evaluate it based on what I know from the past. You don't totally ignore what you know. But whilst you're hearing the new information, then is not the time to evaluate. Then is the time to just receive. And once you receive it, then afterwards you have time to evaluate it. So, what is this mean? So, we're talking about this idea called Bittel. Okay, so what's this idea of Bittel? So, 9b. This is one of my favorite uh, writers, Dr. Jakob Brower. He's a 
professor at McGill University in Montreal. So he says, essential ignorance is achieved when a person becomes truthfully and sincerely cognizant that he lacks understanding. In contrast to passive ignorance, essential ignorance represents a relatively advanced state of self-comprehension. In Hasidic parlance, it is described by the term bitl self-negation. Essential ignorance is not a lack of awareness, but rather the awareness of a lack. It's the awareness of a lack. And as such, it renders the mind an empty vessel prepared to receive. Without bitl, the awareness of a lack, the mind cannot function as a true vessel to admit wisdom, because its standards of admission are distorted by bias, emotional needs, background, and habit. Essential ignorance motivates a individual to pursue truth regardless of the cost of the consequences. So, we have to accept our own limitation, and accepting the limitation is the very thing that breaks the limitation. Okay, accepting our limitation is that which breaks our limitation. Remarkable idea. Because we're limited to why we understand things, right? But when we accept that, that we're limited in what we understand till now, that in itself opens us up to a whole new horizon. So the secret to constantly um, being open to new things is to be committed to finding the truth. Yes, absolutely. And knowing that you are limited by what you know till now. Right? Knowing that you you might be biased and 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 um, and being humble enough to admit your biases. So now, like a child, you can now take on a fresh perspective. And try a new approach. Okay? So this is what's called now and in, in widely known as active listening. So active listening is not is not natural. It's not intuitive. It's a skill that has to be practiced and mastered. So, why is listening difficult? Let's go through it again. Number one, we said because we have to respect every person's opinions and every right. We have to disregard all previous judgments of other people. And now we have a third reason. Listening is difficult because really it demands two opposites. On the one hand, who is listening? There has to be someone who's listening. <laughs> so if there's the I that's listening, so there is a me, there is someone here. Yet I have to be able to put myself aside, so to speak, so to hear what you're saying. So I have to be actively involved in the listening process. The, the very fact of actively involved in the listening process means there is somebody here. There's there's me and my mind and how I see things. At the very same time, I have to hear you. So I have to be able to be there but negate myself. I have to have the self but then negate the self. Because without the self, you're not even you, who's listening. If you're nobody, what are you? Who's hearing? So there has to be a you who's listening. But that person has to be able to set himself aside to hear what the other person has to say.
Well, but to, to make it simple, it's very, I mean, to put it simply, I mean, this is the theory I'm giving you, but to put it simply is, just hear what the person has to say without evaluation, and know for sure that you understood what was said before you evaluate. Right? Our tendency is to evaluate whilst the person is speaking. Don't evaluate what is being said whilst the person is speaking. Don't take th- other things that you know from the past, or from other spheres of influence. Uh, from your education until now, to 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 um, evaluate what was being told to you. Use that, but only after you heard what was being said, not whilst hearing it. That's the key. I think that's the, the hardest thing. I think you, know, you could probably correlate to instances where we start evaluating, we then become aware that we're evaluating, try and do the right thing put that aside and the immense effort that's required to actually listen means that you're actually no longer listening and that kind of good um, point but you know be honest I think that's very hard and when, when you're talking about a class for example a shear a lecture that's much harder but when you're talking about conversation with another person you could stop you could you could ask them to repeat I mean you could right I mean they're not talking for 10 minutes usually in your conversations it's a few minutes at most so yes, when, when listening to a lecture, that's very hard. But it reminds me, uh, Simon Jacobson, who, who was the main, one of the main um, writers of the Rebbe's talks, he once explained how, how he did it. I mean, the Rebbe would speak on Shabbos, and, right? And Shabbos, the Rebbe would speak, let's say, for five hours. You can't write on Shabbos, you can't record on Shabbos, and now we have to hear what the Rebbe is saying and remember it and commit it to writing. How do you do that? How do you hear five hours of talk? Okay, there's a, you know, after an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes a half hour, there'll be a five-minute break. But still, how do you remember an hour's talk without... So the way you put it is that you have to make yourself an empty vessel and just listen. And you cannot evaluate whilst you're listening. If you start evaluating while you're listening, you're finished. Because evaluation is me. I'm in the picture when I evaluate. I'm evaluating. You can't be there in the picture. You just have to be an empty vessel ready to receive what is being told. Now, that's in a lecture, in a class, that's, a, that's really, really difficult. You're right. But when you're talking about interpersonal um, discussion, when you're talking about conversation, and someone's telling you and, and maybe revealing their heart to you, especially as we spoke about last week, um, that, that the conversation is about revealing yourself to another, then absolutely you need to be able to set aside all evaluation and all of my previous preconceived ideas and perspectives and so on to just hear what is being said. So that is not impossible. That's not, yes, as I said, in a lecture, very, very hard. That's why some people take notes, right? You take notes to be able to, to keep your train of thought on what the lecturer is saying. Um, but in a just in a conversation you should be able to do that okay so we get now to figure number three or to uh, concept number three but Rabbi yeah. in, a, in a lecture you're saying certain things 
and it's natural for us to be thinking about what you're saying so that we can come back and, and ask you further questions and dig deeper and get deeper understanding of it as we're going along. So, but that's not being an empty vessel. Uh, yes, I got it. It's a hard one. And, and that's why I'm telling you that let's leave the, uh, the, uh, a lecture aside. Let's talk about your conversations with people. Okay. Right? Yeah, I mean, business conversations, certainly uh, personal conversations with your wife, your children. Um, don't evaluate what they're saying until you, until you finish listening to what they said. That's not too hard. It's not the same as a lecture. Right? That will really help you with this in this area. Okay? So, superposing the other's perspective on my own, that's the problem, that's the impediment. Um, clear my mind, the, the tool is to clear my mind of any pre-existing perspective, empty my mind and focus only on the content of the conversation. Okay. Now we get to the fourth area, and this is quite cool. Um, we know the Haggadah, right? What are we saying, the Haggadah? The Torah speaks about how many children? Four children. Okay. No, the God doesn't speak about a fifth child. There is a fifth child in concept. But the God speaks of four, uh, the Torah speaks of four children. So what are the four children? Text 10a. So when your children say to you, what is this service to you? To you? Text 10b. In the future, when your child asks you, what is this? In other words, these are different places in the Torah which mention when your children will ask you about the Exodus. So 10a, 10b. Can see in the future when your child asks you what is the significance of the testimonies, the statutes, and the ordinances which our God has commanded you. And in the fourth place, it actually says you shall tell your child without saying when he asks you. From there we learn of what? Which child? The one who does not ask. That's why the Torah doesn't say, it only says you should tell your child. It doesn't say when he asks you because he never asked. Okay, which are these three? Which number one is which one? Which child? Sorry? What are we saying, Sean? No, wicked Sean. Wicked. The wicked he's one. He's separating himself. Yes. The second one is simple. simple. The third one is the wise. Very good. Okay. So what's the Torah telling us with this? What's the Torah telling us with this message? Is to say the following. We all hear there's a you know popular culture statement. You don't teach the subject, teach the student, or Better yet, don't answer the question, answer the person. Where does this come from? This is where it comes from. It comes from the Torah. The Torah is telling you, you have four questions. Not very different. Not very different. More similar questions. But listen to what the question is, and you will hear what is really underlying the question. This is a wise son, this is a wicked son, this is a simple son. You can hear it in the question. Not that you hear it in the question. You hear it in the person asking the question. Right? So, there's a story of the uh, of Rabbi Yisav Dev Soloveitchik, the rabbi of Brisk. So some guy came comes to him one before Pesach one year, and says to him, Rabbi, can you fulfill your obligation with four cups of wine with milk? So he tells his wife, please, uh, you have 25 rubles. 
gives him 25 rubles. The guy walks out. The wife says, why did you give him 25 rubles? To buy wine would cost a ruble. Says, if the guy is asking me if you can fulfill the obligation with four cups of milk, that means he has no money for meat either. That means he probably has no money for anything of Pesach. So therefore, I gave him enough money to support his whole Pesach. Why? Because he didn't answer the question, he answered the person. Right? So, let's let's put this into everyday life. Here, exercise four. In the right-hand column, write the likely underlying question or statement, okay? So a child says to a parent, why do I have to go to school? What's what's the underlying uh, question to you? Something about school that the child doesn't like. Ah, okay, very good. Something's going on. So, if you're answering the question, what would you say? To learn. Yeah, you'll talk about education and why education is important. But you missed the point. Because that's not what's bothering the kid. He doesn't want to learn about education. The kid is telling you, obviously something's bothering him. There's something happening there. Well, a spouse says to her husband, why do you have to stay at work so late? So... Yeah, she's feeling lonely. That's the that's the underlying message. But he could say, oh, you know, I have to earn a living, and this is how I have to spend time at work, to earn a living. Ada, she knows that. She's asking you, obviously, there's something deeper going on, right? Spouse says, honey, would you like to stop it for a drink? So what do the men say? I'm not interested in a drink. Go on, right, answering the question. <laughs> what she's really saying is, I want a drink. <laughs> right? He says, I want a drink. She's not saying I want a drink. The question is, why can't you just say you want a drink? That's another story. But uh, would you like to stop for a drink? Answering the question is no or yes, whatever, right? Answering her question is understanding that she needs the drink, right? She wants the drink. So that is... Um, Again, this we see in the Torah again, where in the four sons, where they're asking questions, but you're not just answering the question, you're answering the, the child. This is a wicked, this is a, a righteous, etc. So this is listening tool number four. Listening to the question instead of the questioner. Look for cues that inform me of meta of meta messages. Okay, it's quite clear. <coughs> now, what the last? The last uh, tool for listening. Um, how do you know that you act, that you have clearly understood the other person? So there's a t- there's a tool that we could use. Here's the story of King Solomon. Everyone knows the story of King Solomon and the baby, right? Everyone knows the story of King Solomon and the baby, right? There's another way to that story, you know. You know the other story. The other story is that there was this, uh, this uh, they sent a message to Yeshiva, they needed uh, a, a future son-in-law for their daughter. So two women sent a message to Yeshiva, and two guys are coming to the town to be the son-in-law. And one guy got lost. And only one guy arrives, and there's two women who are future, you know, prospective mother-in-laws, seeing this one bacher come on the station. So they both come to him and say, oh, you're here for my daughter. No, you're my daughter. So they went to the rabbi. This one says, 
this guy came, he's pulling him, he's for my daughter. And the other one says, no, he's for my daughter. The rabbi says, okay, we'll split him in half. So one guy says, so one mother says, uh, no way, you can't split him in half. And the other one says, okay, let's split him in half. And he says, ah, that's the mother in law. <laughs> uh, so King Solomon. Um, so here's the story, right? So we have the reading, reading number 11. One woman said, my Lord, I and this woman dwell in the one house and gave birth. Okay, this is all story. You know what? It's not 11, everyone knows. Um, let me just do the last paragraph. The king said, this one says the living child is my son and the dead child is your son. And the other one says, no, not so. The living child is my son and the dead child is your son. Actually, that's not what happened. If you read the Hebrew, it's not translated correctly. If you look at the Hebrew, and the woman said, uh, I'm sorry, and the woman said, no, or let's, and the second woman said, let's say, the second woman said, not so. The living child is my son, and the dead child is your son. But the first woman insisted, not so. This is not translated right. Your son is the dead one, and my son is the live one. Okay? King Solomon then repeats exactly what they said, in the same order that they said it, which is interesting. And actually, in Shulchan Aruch, we learn halacha. King Solomon was a judge in this case, right? He's the judge. They're coming through with this baby, and he's the judge, judging whose child this is. And before giving his judgment, he, he repeats what they're arguing. So from there we learn the halacha, text number 12. The judges need to restate the arguments in order to put the litigants' minds at ease. So that they do not worry that the judges are deliberating the case without having properly understood their respective claims. Moreover, it is entirely possible that the judges did misunderstand the arguments. If this, in fact, occurred, when the judges restate the, restate the arguments, the litigants have the opportunity to correct the misunderstanding. So we're told that when a judge listens to the arguments of litigants, he should repeat what their argument is, so that, A, the litigant feels heard, feels listened to, because he's repeating it, and B, for the sake of the judge. Maybe Taka didn't understand him, so when you repeat it, then you'll see if you understood what the guy argued. So this is a law concerning a judge. But we could take this idea into listening. Right? That what? That this is all applicable in all areas of, of communication. When you speak to someone and the guy responds to you, you're not sure if he fully understood you. How would you know if he understood you? Very simple. If the guy says to you, um, so let me let me get let me get it straight. Is this what you're saying? You repeat what they say. You paraphrase. It's called right. You paraphrase what they say, and by paraphrasing what they say, first of all, you could be sure that you understood them. Second of all, they could be sure that they were understood. That's also very important. So. Imagine, you know, someone says to you, uh, so I if I understand you correctly, you seem to be saying, or tell me if I'm right. Feel validated. Understood, right? Um, there's a woman who, uh, her husband goes to the shops, or is ready to go to the shops, says, tell me, what, what do you want me to buy you? She says, okay, I'll tell you what. Um, get a carton of milk, and if there's eggs, get six. So he comes back home with six cartons of milk. 
She says, why did you buy six cartons of milk? He says, because there were eggs. Uh, <laughs> so, he would have. Takes <laughs> time, huh? Okay. Um, okay. So, um, because of the complexities of communication, it's possible you didn't get the full message, and therefore, by paraphrasing, doing what King Solomon did, that's a way of making sure you heard what the other, what the person said, and they understood them, and they feel validated or understood. So that's number. F- so let's go through all of all of them actually, as we come to the end of the class. Um, let's go through all five. So lack of res- number one, listening impediment, the lack of respect for the person with, with whom I am conversing or their opinion. How? What's the what's the tool for that? What's the listening tool? You remember? Let's go back to the beginning of the class. Right. So everyone, everyone has them. Everyone has everyone has wisdom implanted in them. Number one and number two, the divine providence exactly of why this conversation happened. Issue number two, um, that fitting what I hear into the mental image I have created of my fellow conversationalist based on previous experience. How do I deal with that? Clear my mind. Yeah. I should clear my mind of pre-existing uh, opinions, um, which is similar to the third case, superimposing the other's perspective on my own. Me too. Right, which is which is the you know the story with the uh, Semmelweis. So vital, yeah. Empty your mind. <coughs> Very good. And listening to the question instead of the questioner. The answer is well. Look for cues, right? And look for other messages. And rushing to respond is that uh, don't rush to respond, but rather paraphrase what they said. Right? As a matter of fact, it's interesting. The Ramam says, the, in Pirkei Ovis, we read about Atignus Shisoychai. Atignus Shisoychai said, be a math. He, was, he was the leader of the Jewish people after Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the Great. Oh, Shimon the righteous, and he was the leader of Tignus right after him. And he made a he said a statement: "Don't serve God for reward. Serve God not for the sake of reward." That's what he said. He had two students. Students were Tzaddik and Baisus. Because of this statement of of Antignus, their teacher, they both went off the path and said, "We're not interested in rabbinic Judaism anymore." And they started. You ever heard of the Sadducees? That's from them. Why did they start the Sadducees? Because they thought that their teacher said that there is no reward. No reward, not interested. But they would have asked him, he would have said, no, not there. There is reward, but don't do it for the reward. So the fact that they didn't listen properly and kind of, they would have easily said, did I get you right? There's no reward. And he would have said, no, there is reward, but that's not why you should do it then we would have uh, saved a lot of problems throughout the Second Temple period, which are the Sadducees and the Christians. Tra- 
No, we said we learn. Well, we learn from the mistake. Okay, that's true. That's true. It's like serving God out of love or serving Him out of fear. Because if you serve Him out of fear, okay, well, then well, you're expecting to be. Let's. I mean, let's, let's not get sidetracked in the actual debate of the issue of reward, not reward. The important point is that the mistake that came about through not listening properly by them, right? That's the main the main issue, and they would and they would have been able to. To ask the question would have been a lot better. Uh, okay. In other words, we should not learn from our own mistakes, but also learn from other people's mistakes. True. Absolutely. That's a wise person learns from other people's mistakes.